As Charles Spurgeon would walk to his pulpit each and every Sunday, he had 15 steps, 15 steps to his pulpit. His pulpit was high, and many of the Puritan pulpits were, not to elevate the speaker, but to elevate the message and to put the significance, the symbolism of the message being elevated as coming down from God. And on each and every step as he took that, on each step he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Spirit this morning. And so as I think about bringing another message to you this morning, uh, I could find great anxiety in that, I guess, if I thought the message depended upon me. But I believe in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, open your Bibles to, John, or to, uh, hmm, to Romans. To Romans. I may do that from time to time. Uh, open your Bibles to Romans. If you have your scripture journal, they're with you. Uh, and then open it also, and you can keep your thoughts there. That's one of the things, as I said last Sunday, not necessarily to write down some things that I have to say, though, though maybe, but some things that the Holy Spirit may bring to your mind as you uh, continue to keep your Romans journal there. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1. And if you do not have your Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible there in front of you and turn, it to, turn, turn to page uh, 939, I believe it is. Today, we'll only be looking at uh, verses 2 to 4, but again, I want to read, put the whole pro, uh, prologue before you, so we'll read verses 1 through 7 to put the unit of thought before you this morning. God's inspired and errant and sufficient word reads, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom also you are called for Jesus Christ." To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we just um, give your, this reading to you this morning, and we ask that you would bless the reading of your word, a word that was originally written to Rome. But we know, Lord, in your providence, in your spirit, that this is also a word that was written to us in generations, if the earth tarries, that come after us, that this is also written for each and every person who reads it. And so, Father, now as we spend a few moments, and I add some thoughts to it, Father, we do ask that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would illuminate this text for what each of us needs to hear this morning. And we just give it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have titled this, The Extraordinary Message. Extraordinary Message. You may have heard the maxim, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Some use this maxim against the belief of Christianity and say that as Christians, they demand from us extraordinary evidence for the extraordinary message that we have. Don't allow that. Don't listen to that. Don't accept that pushback. Rather, 
We know that the message of Christianity is as old as life itself. And the survival of this message alone is extraordinary evidence to the authenticity of the biblical message. To make the extraordinary claim that there is no God or to deny the deity of Jesus requires extraordinary evidence on the part of the unbeliever. And so last week we looked at verse 1, and from it we were introduced to the messenger, which was Paul, and also we were introduced to the message. And, and, and just, just as a brief recap, if you will, uh, the, the messenger, of course, was Paul. And Paul said, and though Paul was somebody, Paul had credentials, and yet Paul presented himself as a slave of Christ and said, Lord, I am only a church in Rome. I am only a slave of Christ. Really, it's Christ Paul pointed to for everything. And in these first seven verses of the letter to the Romans, it's really a, a, a summary, if you will. It's a prelude, exactly that, of what is to come throughout the next 16 chapters of Rome. And he gives the gospel succinctly in a nice little package, and Paul starts with, I am a slave of Christ. And the message is the gospel of God. As we think of the, the, the gospel in and of itself, and you were to define the gospel, you would probably say that, that the gospel is that Jesus loves us so much, that God loves us so much, that he sent his son to die on our behalf, to take what we deserve and take that from us and give us what we do not deserve, and that is his grace, his mercy, and forgiveness. That's a, that's a little brief summary but really what, what, what Paul is saying, that that gospel, the gospel that is from God, is the content of that. That's the gospel that comes from God. Comes from God. And we're going to explore that just a little bit uh, this morning. At least that's, that's my aim. And so for today, as we look at verses 3 to 4, or 2 to 3, I guess, or 2 to 4, excuse me, verses 2 to verse 4, from these uh, three verses, I've got a point in each one, and the first being the antiquity of the message, verse 2, the subject of the message, verse 3, and then lastly, verse 4 is the proof of the message. And so that's what we're going to look at, the antiquity, we're going to look at the subject, and then we're going to look at the proof here this morning. And one thing as we think about and as we look at uh, the antiquity of the message. The antiquity of the message, I was trying to find a different word there, but it's just a, it's an ancient message. It's a message that is not new. This is not a new message that, that Paul is writing about. It's not like the latest and the greatest fad. It's not like the, the latest and the greatest way to do church, if you will. You know, we often hear people say things like, well, the, the, the method changes, but the message never does. And that is very, very true. But often in the midst of, of saying that, the, me the message can also be changed. And so this morning, we must understand this is not a, a new message. It's not the latest and the greatest. The message is still the same. This message is not new. This message does not need to be redefined. And today, we want to redefine the message. There are so many who want to take the biblical gospel message and redefine it, to recant it, to represent it in a way that's a little gentle, 
That's a little less offensive. That's a little less acceptable. And they do so by wanting to redefine life. They want to redefine marriage. They want to redefine gender. I mean, those are just a couple hot topics of our current era. Many could be added to that. But the message is still the same that always was. Many want to redefine the message so that it fits my life. I am guilty of that. I want the message to fit my life. I want to understand the message so that it makes James comfortable. And so we're not, no one's alone in that, but we just need to be reminded this morning that the message does not change. There is no adjective in front of the gospel. It's not social gospel. It's not liberation gospel. It is just simply the gospel. It doesn't change. It's just the gospel of God. It's the what and the how. The what is the message, is the gospel And then the how is how we live out the gospel. It's two parts, right? It's the gospel, and then those of us who have accepted the gospel, how does that redirect our life to live out the gospel? It's not the other way around. Many times we would rather say, okay, this is how the gospel is lived out, and so our emphasis, our focus is on the how instead of on the what, and so the what is defined by the how. Are you following that? We cannot do that. That can be an easy trap. I hate to say trap. That could be an easy habit to fall into because, of course, we are people of action. We want to be doers. And so I get that, and I understand that. And so I want you to hear that this morning, and I want you to hear as we go through Romans that here in the beginning, Paul is going to really be maybe sometimes he can be a bit hard, but throughout the letter of the Romans, Paul is often not credited for how that gospel message is lived out, but Paul is credited for the harshness, for the legalism that some want to find in the letter of the Romans should not view it that way. And hopefully, as we go through this, I can bring out some of those things within this letter. But nonetheless, this morning, that's what we're going to focus on this morning is, is the what. And so by focusing on the what, I'm not eliminating the how. I just don't want to focus on the how until we got the what. What? I better move on. <laughs> but I hope you get that. And so I want you to hear this morning that the message is not new. This is the message that was from the beginning of time. Beginning of time, in fact, the reference in the Bible that we have of this message is in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 is where everything uh, went south, if you will, where everything went awry, where where the people of God uh, decided to deviate from the message of God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God is Handing out his judgment, I guess I can use that word, he comes to Satan and he says, Satan, because you have deceived the man and the woman, therefore I will put enmity, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, between your seed, Satan, and between the offspring, between the seed of the woman, of the man and the woman. He, this seed that he's being spoken of here, will crush your head and you will bruise him on the heel. We can see in that because we know the whole story. 
We see the illusion. We see here the analogy. We see that already from Genesis chapter 3, God is pointing to some epic battle that is going to take place. And in the end of that epic battle, Satan's head will indeed be crushed, not bruised, but crushed and completely destroyed. And that is what we see in the gospel message, the work of Jesus there. And we see right from the beginning of the biblical text pointing to this gospel of God. Jesus also points to this, to the text, to the scripture itself in in verse 2. Let me just read it again. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures, in the scriptures. And so Jesus himself points to the scriptures here, just as Paul himself is doing. So he's saying this is the gospel of God, and God has promised this, and this promise is recorded, and it's been handed down by the prophet, and then it's been recorded in the scriptures for us. And in, in, um, in, in, in um, Luke, Luke chapter 24, Jesus himself points to this particular message here, this gospel uh, message. In Luke chapter 24, if you recall, as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, we often refer to it as that. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, uh, as the disciples realized who was walking with them, Jesus says, or, the, or, or Luke records with that, Jesus, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus exegeted the text. Jesus explained from scriptures, starting with Moses and all the other prophets, what happened, what they had experienced, and that was the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then in verse 44 and 45, he, he continues. And he says, now Jesus said to them, these are my words which spoke to you while I was still with you that all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds, illuminated the text so that they could understand these things. Jesus himself said his message wasn't new. He pointed all the way back to Moses. Speaking of Moses... I was kind of interesting. Okay, when did Moses write or live? How many years before, like, Paul would have written this letter? And it was almost 1,700 years. That's a long time. It's not an eternity, but it seems kind of that way, but that's a long time. And so if you just think about that message for a moment, 1,700 years, and we still have the message before us, today. How many evil men attempted to destroy this message and still it stands? But I digress. Let me get back on track. Jesus himself pointed to the scriptures and the promises that were there. It's the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. And there again, we see the picture that is going to be painted of Jesus, of the father offering up Jesus The story of the gospel runs throughout the whole text. I was tempted to kind of trace some of those threads throughout the Old Testament, but but I'll refrain from doing that. But we see it there when 
as they were in the wilderness and wandering around and the people got sick and they created the snake and they put it up on the cross and you know, put it up on the stick and had to look up to that snake or look up to that stick and, and there they were healed and Jesus pointed out that that's him, that's me. He, made the, he brought, carried that over. There's so many of those analogies that we see this message is the gospel of God and it's not new. It was from the very beginning. We could say it was a purposeful message. In Titus chapter one, Verses 1 and 2, where Paul there is, is writing to Titus, to one of, his, one of his students, if you will. Paul, again, introduces himself as a slave, as a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of truth, which is in accordance to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, Long ago, ages before. It's a message that has been promised long, long ago. We have it also in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. As Paul was given, offense, uh, given his defense before Agrippa, before King Agrippa, Paul says there that now I am standing trial. Or we could say, I am being, or I am on trial, or I am uh, being tried for the hope of the promise made to God, to, made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes. He's pointing all the way back to the 12 tribes that were originally established. We could say in, all the way back into antiquity hope to obtain as they earnestly serve God day and night. So Paul there is also pointing back to the same biblical message, the same old message, why he can stand before Agrippa on trial, because of the promise that he has been given through Scripture. Well, that's the antiquity of the message that we see in verse 2. Let's move on to the subject of the message in verse 3. The subject of the message in verse 3, concerning his son, the gospel of God, the message was promised. The subject is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant. Really, the word there in direct translation would be seed. Born of a descendant, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Well, well who's the subject? Well, obviously, the subject that we see here is, is Jesus. Is Jesus. And I want to... Um, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and you can turn there too if you like. I just want to spend a few moments as, as time ticks away. I want to spend a few moments there in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, as we think of the subject Jesus, it's a sermon that I preached, ah, man, a long, long, long time ago, and it was titled, you know, Jesus is superior in every way. And we see it here in the first three verses of Hebrews where the Hebrew author starts out with God. What a way to start out a letter. God, after he had spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And there's seven ways in these few verses where we see Jesus is superior in every way. We see that Jesus is superior in his proclamation as he spoke. We see that Jesus is superior in his possession. He is the heir of all things. We see that Jesus is superior in power. He made the world. We see that Jesus is superior in person because he is the exact representation of God. We see that Jesus is superior in preservation because he upholds all things. We see Jesus is superior in his pardon because he made purification for sins. And we see that Jesus is superior in his position because he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. This is the subject of the gospel of God. This is what Paul is putting before the people. Jesus, Paul is saying right here, this is the subject of the gospel. This is going to be the subject of the next 16 chapters as I write to you. And we must understand who the subject is. And so as we lay the groundwork for as we continue on and as we get some hard teachings in the letter of Romans, we must always remind ourselves and go back and circle back, if you will, and once again, reintroduce ourselves to the subject, and that is Jesus. And look at the model, look at the content that is there. And that's what I will often do as I come into some very difficult situations or examples or texts of Scripture that I can't possibly understand. I once again just throw myself before the subject and say, Jesus, you're superior in every way. I don't have to understand, but this is what's been recorded for me. And without the sufficiency and the authenticity of Scripture, I have nothing. And so I give myself that. That is why I took a little bit of time there to highlight some of these things for you. But next, I want you to see here in verse 2, I want you to see two things here. And it's really, <laughs> um, we see two things. And for, for those of you who are maybe a little more Bible nerds or theology nerds, it's the hypostatic union. Now, what is that? Well, if you run across that term in theological writings or, or language, it's, it's a term that's thrown out, and often with terms, when you say that term, we already know exactly what's meant, and you can stop right there. But, it, it, but just in simple terms, it's the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, right? It's the deity and the humanity. And theologians or, and, and Bible scholars, they call that the, the hypostatic union to, to mean that Jesus did not lay aside any of his deity as he took on humanity. But he was 100% deity and 100% human. How does that work? I don't know. But that's the clear teaching of the biblical text. And those are some of the things that we just have to hold at arm length and understand that we can't possibly grasp the workings of the almighty God. But we see it right here that Paul is saying, listen, this message that is from God, it comes, he's, he's writing about his son, the son of God, God, who was born of a descendant, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And Paul wants the people to understand that Jesus could relate in every single way as you and I. That although Jesus was indeed God, yet how? I don't know. Paul doesn't know, and Paul does his best at understanding. In fact, Peter says, you know, some of Paul's writings are really hard to understand, <laughs> but we must understand and we must grasp that. It's just groundwork that we have to lay here for where we're going. We just need to till the ground to get ready for the growth that will occur there. And some of these things I just want to put before you 
as we get into some difficult teachings, we must understand who God is. We must understand who Jesus is. We must understand where this message comes. It is the gospel of God. But in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am, capital I, capital A. He was clearly referring himself all the way back, using God's name God used for himself, I am. Those who want to say Jesus never claimed to be God, well, he most certainly did. He did over and over and over again. Don't, and, and don't, don't get, uh, we'll stop right there. <clears throat> Anyways, John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. What does that mean? John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God. John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, see the, this humanity of Jesus. And in fact, just one more as I continue to pound on this nail, just, just one more to make sure it's set really good. Just, just one more in Matthew chapter one, verse 21. As the angel came and talked to, uh, talked to Joseph and said, your girlfriend is pregnant. <laughs> okay, how would you like to receive that news? Your girlfriend, <clears throat> she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The Pharisees understood exactly what was being said. In Mark chapter um, 2, verse 5, Jesus looked at the paralytic and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees' response, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But God alone. Listen, friends, we must we must believe, we must accept the deity of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. The subject of the message is Jesus, the Son of God. Now let's move on to the proof of the message in verse 4. The proof of the message is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the proof of the message we see in verse four. You see it in verse four there in your Bible. Who, referring back to verse three, who Jesus was declared the son of God with power, not with weakness. Often we think of, of this meek man who is just the byproduct of a harsh generation, of a, of a harsh government, if you will. And, and Jesus will just obviously, because of the way he's lived his life, obviously death was part of it. No, it was very purposeful who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And right there, I see a little triangle written in, the, in my Bible. And so for me, a symbol of a triangle for me, it tells me it's the Trinity. That it's a reference to the Trinity, and you see it there. You see in this verse, we see a mention. We see the name of Jesus. We see the mention of the name of God, and we see the mention of the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity uh, right here for us in this verse. The resurrection was not done by God alone. It was not by Jesus alone. It was not by the Holy Spirit alone. It was a Trinitarian event. It, it, all members of the Trinity were involved here with this. But first... <clears throat> Getting ahead of myself, we must understand that Jesus was always the Son of God. 
Jesus did not earn this position because of his power over death. Jesus had power over death because of his position. So, so in this verse, one could take away, if we're not careful, one could take away that the whole reason Jesus was declared, which we'll get to that word, but Jesus was appointed, better word, Jesus was appointed son of God was because of his obedience to the Father, and we do have some of that language, but it was because of that obedience is why he earned this position, and that would be, that would be borderline heretical thinking. We cannot go there. In Colossians chapter 1, Verses 15 and 16 there, Paul again writing, For he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now listen to verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus always was. So Jesus did not earn this position because of his obedience. That's not what caused him to earn this position. But he was declared the Son of God. Declared the Son of God. It's used eight times in the New Testament. Only once does it refer to, to a human, to another person. All other seven times, it's a, it's a reference uh, uh, to God. And we see here that... Uh, uh, the, the word here um, for, for declared, it's also predetermined, it's fixed, um, and appointed. I think those are the, the different meanings of it. But here, here it's also as a, uh, we get our English word horizon from it, horizo. We get our word horizon from it. You can kind of hear it in there. And you think about that for a minute, what's the big deal? Well, there, there's two things that I think why I find this interesting as we think about God being or Jesus being appointed there. As you think about the horizon, it's a definite line, is it not? You can clearly see the horizon. And there's definite marker there that we see. And for Jesus, that is, that is the definite marker. But, but the way that I like to think about it is this, as you try to understand the position of Jesus, is that as you go towards that horizon, you will never meet the horizon, will you? You will never get there where the sky and the earth, the sky and the sea meet. It'll always be off in the distance. It is never something that you will completely reach. And it is that way with Jesus. It is that way as you think about the position and the work of Christ. It is never exhausted. It is never complete. It is never something that we can fully understand or grasp. It is always there in the distance and yet right, right near there it is, right there. There never was a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. God has appointed or set the events of the world and in our lives. But first and foremost, God has appointed his Son to accomplish redemption on our behalf. That's the first event. That's the first event. First and foremost, it's the what? God has sent Jesus to bring redemption into our life and on our behalf. You can just write this reference down. I'm not going to take the time to read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We see that this was the predetermined plan of God. Paul on Mars Hill, again, a reference, Acts 17, verse 31. You can write that down for your own reference, where Paul says also that he was appointed. In John chapter 18, verse, John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, They didn't take my life from me, I laid my life down. 
and I can also pick up my life again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. Paul tells us here, and I'm going to take time to, to read that because I'm going to get, in, get into my closing point here. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 3 and 5, where Paul says there is it's the gospel in a nutshell. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And there we have the gospel in a nutshell. It's all about the death, and it's all about the, the resurrection of Jesus. A couple, verses, a couple verses later in verse uh, 17, Paul goes on to say that if Christ has indeed not died, if Christ has indeed not risen, our faith is worthless. Everything hinges upon this event of the resurrection. Everything. Your faith is no stronger than your trust in Scripture because it is from Scripture that your faith is extrapolated from. There's no other ancient texts, there's no other ancient documents that record for us the resurrection of Jesus in this way. If we cannot believe some of the other teachings in the Bible, why would we want to teach the resurrection? I've gone and I've beat on that point so many times over and over and over. And we must hear it again. As your faith, as your belief in Scripture goes, so goes your faith. And so coming to a close, the message is Paul and by extension to us. By extension, that mantle has been placed upon that cloak, has been placed upon our shoulders to carry. The message is the gospel of God. The message is not new, but the message is the same message from antiquity past. The subject, of course, is Jesus. The proof of the message is the proof of promise, and that is of the resurrection. And Paul is all in. Paul says, if the resurrection did not happen, your faith is in vain. And how can I not leave you with Romans 10, 9? For Paul puts it very simply, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel of God. Father, we thank you for your messenger, Paul. But Father, we come before you in complete awe, in complete lack of understanding, and yet in simple childlike faith. We surrender our heart and life to you. We give you thanks for doing what we cannot possibly do, for doing what you did not have to do, but willfully and voluntarily did on our behalf. And so, Father, I do pray that as we think about the gospel message, we don't just stop there, but we also take it to the how. And how then shall we live? I pray, Father, that those instructions would come from you. We give it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.